We're looking this morning at Genesis chapter 1. We will begin reading at chapter 1, verse 1. Genesis 1, beginning at verse 1. And I'm going to start now. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. And God said, let there be light, and there was light. God saw that the light was good, and he separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening, and there was morning the first day. And God said, let there be an expanse between the waters to separate water from water. So God made the expanse and separated the water under the expanse from the water above it, and it was so. God called the expanse sky, and there was evening and there was morning the second day. And God said, let the water under the sky be gathered to one place, and let dry ground appear, and it was so. God called the dry ground land, and the gathered waters he called seas, and God saw that it was good. Then God said, let the land produce vegetation, seed-bearing plants and trees on the land that bear fruit with seed in it according to their various kinds. And it was so. The land produced vegetation, plants bearing seed according to their kinds, and trees bearing fruit with seed in it according to their kinds. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening and there was morning the third day. And God said, let there be lights in the expanse of the sky to separate the day from the night, and let them serve as signs to mark seasons and days and years, and let them be lights in the expanse of the sky to give light on the earth. And it was so. God made two great lights, the greater light to govern the day and the lesser light to govern the night. He also made the stars. God set them in the expanse of the sky to give light on the earth, to govern the day and the night, and to separate light from darkness. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening and there was morning, the fourth day. And God said, let the water teem with living creatures and let birds fly above the earth across the expanse of the sky. So God created the great creatures of the sea and every living and moving thing with which the water teems according to their kinds and every winged bird according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. God blessed them and said, be fruitful and increase in number and fill the water in the seas and let the birds increase on the earth. And there was evening and there was morning the fifth day. And God said, let the land produce living creatures according to their kinds, livestock, creatures that move along the ground and wild animals, each according to its kind. And it was so. God made the wild animals according to their kinds, the livestock according to their kinds, and all the creatures that move along the ground according to their kinds. And God saw that it was good. Then God said, let us make man in our image, in our likeness, and let them rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air, over the livestock, over all the earth, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air and over every living creature that moves on the ground. Then God said, I give you every seed-bearing plant on the face of the whole earth and every tree that has fruit with seed in it. They will be yours for food. And to all the beasts of the earth and all the birds of the air and all the creatures that move on the ground, everything that has the breath of life in it, I give every green plant for food. And it was so. God saw all that he had made, and it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. Thus the heavens and the earth were completed in all their vast array. By the seventh day, God had finished the work he had been doing, so on the seventh day he rested from all his work. And God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it he rested from all the work of creating that he had done. Let's pray. 
Sovereign Triune Creator, we acknowledge this fundamental foundation of our worldview, that you are our maker, that we are your creatures, and that all human thought properly has its origin, its start in this fact. So we worship you and we praise you right now as our maker. We thank you for making us. We pray that you would bless our study of this uh, difficult, controversial passage. We pray that there would be more light than heat, that we would uh, come away truly profiting from your word and honoring you more fully and completely as our maker. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. The doctrine of Scripture includes the idea that the Bible is perspicuous. Does anyone know what that means? It means that the Bible is clear. (laughs) The great irony of picking a word that is unclear to teach that the Bible is clear. Uh, In theory, the Bible is clear, that uh, anyone who will not receive the kingdom of God like a little child will never enter it. And so in theory, uh, even little children are supposed to be able to understand the scriptures. It is perspicuous or clear. And on that understanding, the, the plain or obvious reading of Genesis 1 is that God created the heavens and the earth in six literal consecutive 24-hour days. Yeah. The text says evening and morning, uh, which seem to indicate 24-hour days. It says first day, second day, third day. Uh, in the Hebrew language, uh, the word day only ever means a 24-hour day when, when it's put with numbers like that. And if a child comes away from the passage, the obvious conclusion they're going to reach, if you ask them how long did it take God to make everything, the child's going to say, well, it took him six days to make everything. So that's what Genesis 1 teaches, apparently, at any rate, a literal six-day, 24-hour creation. Does the Bible ever say when God created the heavens and the earth? Does it give a date for creation? Well, the answer is yes. The Bible does give a date for creation. Uh, If you would turn with me, please, to 1 Kings chapter 6. Please turn with me to 1 Kings chapter 6. Does the Bible give a date for when God made everything? Look with me at 1 Kings chapter 6. Verse 1. First Kings chapter 6. Verse 1. It says, In the 480th year after the Israelites had come out of Egypt, in the fourth year of Solomon's reign over Israel, in the month of Ziv, the second month, he began to build the temple of the Lord. He said, well, that doesn't say when God made everything. I agree completely. What it says is when Solomon began to build the temple. According to this, it was in the fourth year of his reign, and that is the year 966 B.C. You can see that in the middle column up there, the number 966. That is the date, 966 B.C. And the reason I start with that date is because even secular scholars agree with it. Even the, the most hardened atheist uh, Bible scholar believes that Solomon was a real person, that he built a real temple, and that he actually began it in the year 966 B.C. So we have a common starting ground. Now, according to this passage, according to this verse, It was in the 480th year after the Israelites had come out of Egypt. You'll see the number 480 added to 966. Add the two together and you get what date for the Exodus? 1446 B.C. is the year for the Exodus. You say, well, that doesn't tell us when the creation happened. I agree. But it does tell us when the Exodus happened. 
All right, now go to Galatians chapter 3. Go to Galatians chapter 3, verses 16 and 17. Trying to demonstrate the fact that the Bible does, in fact, teach when God created the heavens and the earth. A date for creation. Looking at Genesis 3, verses 16 and 17, it says, The promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed. The scripture does not say, and to seed, meaning many people, but into your seed, meaning one person who is Christ. What I mean is this. The law, introduced 430 years later, does not set aside the covenant previously established by God and thus do away with the promise. According to this passage, there is a 430-year gap between the giving of the law, which happened in the same year as the Exodus, and the time when the covenant was made with Abraham. All right, so you look up there, and you'll see the number 430 added to 1446, and we get a date for when God made his covenant with Abraham, the year 1886 B.C. Now, this morning's lesson is not on uh, this, okay? So I'm not actually going to go through the rest of it. If this is something to interest you, and uh, maybe there are a few in here that it actually does interest, okay, uh, I'm happy to show you this later or uh, email it to you, all right? But you see that we can march through a series of passages and get all the way down to a date of about 3983 B.C. for the year that God made Adam. Okay? Now, if, if the plain reading of Genesis 1 is true, that God made everything in six days, then that means the year that God made Adam is the year that God made everything. And so, poof, we're suddenly back to, and let's just round it off to about the year 4000 B.C. So we can say that in circa 4000 B.C., God made the heavens and the earth, and that is in fact the traditional date for creation. Now, I realize that many modern scholars say that these genealogies have gaps in them and stuff like that. Let's just leave that aside for a moment and keep it simple. The Bible, at least upon a plain reading, teaches that we live in a young earth and a young universe. And whether we attack a few thousand years in there uh, or not, we're, we're still left with this basic idea of a young planet, a planet that's only several thousand years old, a universe that's only several thousand years old. If you would turn with me back to Genesis 1, please. The problem with this interpretation of the Bible, of course, is that contemporary scientists teach something very different. Contemporary scientists teach that the Earth is about 4.5 billion years old and that the universe as a whole is about 14 billion years old. The evidence that they bring to bear in support of this conclusion is comprehensive and indeed overwhelming. You can look through a telescope and see galaxies many billions of light years away. Uh, other telescopic evidence shows that the universe is expanding and this expansion also seems to have been happening for many billions of years. If you're a geologist, you can point to lava fields that took a million years to cool. You can look at uh, plate tectonics and how the the continents seem to fit together and it took a long time to drift apart. Uh, my personal favorite are the land features formed by the advance and receding of glaciers that seem to happen over uh, many hundreds of thousands of years. Uh, you've got coral reefs that, again, seem to have taken hundreds of thousands of years to build up. You've got radiometric dating. The list could go on. If you're an old earth person and I just left out your favorite little bit of evidence in favor of, of an old universe, okay, it's not intentional. Uh, uh, I'm just sort of representing 
that position briefly uh, and just trying to get across the point that people who believe in an old earth are not idiots. They have good reasons for what they believe. Uh, and in fact, uh, an impartial observer might say that that evidence is quite overwhelming, that obviously the planet is very old and the universe even older. So we have this apparent contradiction. The Bible teaching a young universe, a young earth, and uh, the almost universal uh, voice of modern science saying that the planet is old. And what do we do with this apparent contradiction? I say apparent because all truth is God's truth. Uh, what we learn from creation, from general revelation in the end, cannot and will not contradict special revelation in the Bible. But there is obviously an apparent contradiction. What do we do with it? And at least in our culture today, in the United States, it seems that people do one of seven things with that contradiction, or apparent contradiction, I should say. Okay. The first is to adopt philosophic naturalism. Naturalism is the belief that matter, energy, time, and chance that are, all, are all that exist, all that ever have existed, all that ever will exist. In other words, some people decide to bail on Christian faith completely and decide that the Bible is wrong, uh, that it's all just a ridiculous pack of lies, a myth that, that the Genesis 1 is a creation myth that was thought up by silly people uh, who didn't know better, and that now that we have science, uh, we have an explanation for the origin of everything, the Big Bang and evolution, of course, and that God is out of a job. All right, and that is what some people do, okay? When they come face-to-face -face with this apparent contradiction, they become naturalists, evolutionists, atheists, call it what you want. A second option that some people choose is theistic evolution. Theistic evolution. This is a rather creative idea. Uh, the basic uh, premise behind it is that God, since he's all-powerful, he could have made a universe in which evolution happened. Okay, I mean, he can do anything, right? And so that's what he did. He, he made a universe in which evolution could actually happen. And then he sort of stepped back and watched it happen. All right, this view is very similar to deism, sort of the belief that God uh, created the universe, set it running like a clock, and then sort of stepped back and watched it happen. And under this view, uh, God is not really the creator of life. He just watched life arise. But it at least sort of explains where the Big Bang came from, I guess, at least, and, and natural laws and stuff like that. The theistic evolution position. Third is the calendar day view, the sort of the, the plain or most obvious view, the one that I presented uh, at the beginning of our time together this morning, that the six days of creation are six literal consecutive 24-hour days, and we just sort of hold on to that and sort of somehow have to reconcile that with uh, the findings and beliefs of modern science. Fourth view is what's called the day-age theory. And uh, someone who holds a day-age theory is going to say that the days of Genesis 1 aren't actual days. Okay, they're ages, they're epochs, they're eons, they're long periods of time, millions, billions of years long, and they overlap, and uh, Genesis is sort of trying to communicate this idea that God created everything, and he sort of had a process to it, and yes, he spoke things into being, but that Genesis 1 isn't trying to communicate uh, a literal chronology of how long it took God to do it, that the days are long periods of time. And uh, this view, of course, has had many proponents uh, in the church, especially uh, in the 1800s. 
A fifth view is called the framework hypothesis. This is the uh, belief that the week of Genesis is a poetic symbol or metaphor, that God didn't create everything in a week, and that Genesis 1 is not trying to communicate at all any sort of chronological information, that it's poetry. Uh, the, the main uh, argument for this is that there is a certain sort of internal structure to the, to the book of Genesis 1. If you look at days 1, 2, and 3, God is subduing uh, creation, and in days 4, 5, and 6, God is filling it. And it seems like what God fills it with on day 4 corresponds to day 1, and what God fills it with on day 5 corresponds to day 2, and what God fills it with on day 6 corresponds to what he does on day 3. And so they sort of look at this sort of structure to it and say, ah, that is evidence of uh, poetry. Poetry uses a uh, sort of literary schema like that, uh, literary structure. And, and therefore, we are not meant to extract any sort of chronology or chronological information from Genesis 1, that its purpose is to teach that God made everything, and it does so in a creative or poetic or metaphorical fashion. And uh, what we are meant to take away from Genesis 1 is that God made everything. A sixth view is the analogical days view. And uh, this is the belief that the days of Genesis are days, but they're God's days, God's work days. Whatever a day is to God, that's what the day of the days of Genesis 1 are. And that he did everything in days to sort of set a pattern for us, because we work in six days and rest on the seventh. And so he followed his own set of days. Um, I'm not really sure how to explain this one uh, better than that or how it really differs from the other views. Uh, if there's someone here who holds to this, um, I'm really happy to punt the analogical days one to you. But somehow the days of, of Genesis being analogous to, to human days, the God's days are somehow analogous or... or uh... Okay, that's, that's view six. And uh, I'm having trouble figuring out how it's different from some combination of four and five, but I'm sure someone who holds it would say it is different. Uh, finally, seventh. This is, the, this is not a sort of official view. I put it on here because uh, I actually encounter it so often. Okay, I don't encounter it in books. I encounter it in people. Okay, this is the view that we should just be agnostic on all the details, meaning we can't know when God made everything or how he made it that all that matters is that God made everything. And uh, this view is actually extremely common, and I'm going to be so bold as to, I can almost guarantee there are some people in this room who hold this view, even though you never read it in a book, even though it's not an official position uh, of, any, of any theologian that I know of. Uh, it's extremely common. Uh, some of us sort of naturally shy away from controversy, and so th this sort of allows us to not sort of jump into it. Some of us just don't feel like doing the research and jumping into all these different views. And so it's, it's sort of easier just to say, God made everything, and, you know, which specific position doesn't really matter. Uh, uh, what counts is that God made it all. All right, so those are sort of the seven uh, current options. Now, I realize that there are actually a wide variety of other theories that are, are put forth to explain the days of Genesis 1 and try to reconcile it, but these are just the most common ones at this time. 
these seven. Now, uh, the first two are not accepted in the PCA, okay? I got that out. If I, if I recall correctly, uh, one thing I was supposed to make clear today is that the first two views are, are not accepted in the PCA, okay? They are both evolutionary views. Uh, they, they strip away man's unique status as the bearer of the divine image and render us as mere animals and God is either non-existent or at most uh, deistic bystander to the universe that he sort of got up and running. All right. So if you're a naturalist or a theistic evolutionist, I love you, but you're wrong. Days three, four, five, and six, I'm sorry, uh, options three, four, five, and six, okay, are all accepted in the PCA, all right, and you will find pastors, teachers who hold to all four of these positions in the PCA, and our denomination has sort of agreed to disagree, uh, sort of major on the majors, minor on the minors, and and decide that it's not worth uh, being divisive on uh, this particular issue as long as we affirm that God really did make everything, that Adam and Eve were real people, that the, the fall into sin really did happen, that uh, what we do with uh, the days, we're, we're, we're not requiring someone to hold any one of those four views. Um, if, if you haven't figured out yet, I'm a, I'm a number three-er, okay? Uh, very much hold to the, the literal uh, six-day creation view, okay? But, you know, uh, I've got many brethren, uh, fellow pastors in the PCA who don't, and we get along. We love each other, and uh, we haven't we haven't broken out any any heavy weapons yet, at least uh, in uh, in dealing with this. What what I actually want to focus on here for a few minutes is the seventh view, the agnostic view, the the idea that the whole controversy just doesn't matter. Okay, that you know what we do with the six days, what we do with the apparent uh, contradictions. Just, just really isn't that big a deal, that it's a minor issue. What I want to challenge you with is, uh, is my belief that, that number seven is not a legitimate option, okay? That this issue does matter. And the reason it matters is because of the doctrine of original sin. If you would please turn with me in your Bibles to Romans chapter 8. Please turn with me in your Bibles to Romans chapter 8. The dating of this planet in and of itself, frankly, just, I agree, it doesn't really matter that much. But suddenly, when you realize that it's tied into this other doctrine, it matters immensely. It matters immensely. We believe in the doctrine of original sin. And by that, we mean that because Adam was the federal head of the human race, when he sinned, uh, there were a number of consequences for us and for the universe. Uh, first of all, we uh, have the guilt of Adam's first sin credited or imputed to us. Second, we inherit a sin nature from Adam. But third, and I want to focus on the third thing right now. Third, the whole creation, which was put under Adam's dominion, the whole creation fell with him. It all fell with him. It, it wasn't just man that fell into sin. Man was given dominion over the earth and everything under our lordship, the physical universe, fell into decay and ruin and bondage when our first father Sin. Please look with me at Romans 8, verses 20 through 22. Romans 8, verses 20 through 22. It says, For the creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it, 
in hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the glorious freedom of the children of God. We know that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. So the idea here is that uh, the creation itself uh, fell with Adam. It is now in bondage to decay, and that when man is finally redeemed at the return of Christ, it's not just us that is going to be redeemed. It's the whole creation that is waiting for its redemption. The whole creation is waiting to be restored, and the, the creation groans as in the pains of childbirth. I mean, can you hear it? It's groaning. Okay, and, and what we mean by that is this. Um, the world is a horrible place. It is fallen. It is a world full of death, decay, disaster, disease. And it was not made that way. God made a world that was very good. We screwed it up. You know, if, if you get one thing out of this morning, that is what I want you to take away. That the world as we see it now, groaning in bondage to decay, is not the way God made the world. He made a world that was not just good, a world that was very good. And we are the ones who messed it up. The day you eat of it, you will surely die, God said. And boy, has he given us death. Now, here's how this ties into the, the age of the earth. Let's say I'm an old earth person, okay? If you are, again, you know, I'm not here to pick a fight, all right? But let's say I'm an old earth person, all right? I believe that uh, there's this layer of fossils in the ground that's 300 million years old, all right? What am I saying? I'm saying that death existed before what? Before the fall. I'm saying that death existed before the fall into sin. I'm saying that the world as we see it now is the way God made the world. A world full of death and decay and disaster and dirt. God didn't make dirt. God made soil. Think about what you're saying when you're saying this is an old earth. Think about what you're saying when you're saying that those fossils are the way God made the world. A world in bondage to decay. According to this, that is not the way God made the world. God made a world that was very good. And so, so what I believe is at stake is the doctrine of original sin. Did God make a world that was very good and we mess it up and all these things about the world that we find now are that way because of the fall into sin or is God a lousy creator? I mean, is he to blame for why the world is so messed up? That's the issue I believe at stake. And which is why I want to challenge you that uh, to, to, if, you're, if you're a number seven person up there, you know, I don't really care about all this, you know, it doesn't matter. What I'm, what I'm challenging you with is the fact that it does matter. It does matter because of the doctrine of original sin. It does matter. This is Sunday school. This isn't a sermon. Thoughts, comments, questions. Okay, well, uh, John said, uh, it sounds like the PCA is at number seven because you can believe any of three through six and still be a pastor. Uh, perhaps I haven't represented them well. All of those, all of those positions would claim that Adam really fell into sin, that, that sin, it, 
is the cause of the fallenness of the world. Uh, you might say there, they could run into some inconsistencies there then, which I would say the positions do. Um, but, but nevertheless, they would all, they would all affirm the doctrine of original sin, certainly. I don't know. His question is, what do they do with dinosaurs? Uh, folks in, in the four, well, any, any of us, what do any of us do with dinosaurs? Uh, I'll tell you what I do with dinosaurs, okay? God made dinosaurs. At some point, they became extinct. That's what I do with dinosaurs. <laughs> yeah, wait. Uh, Mike just said uh, that, well, no, some of, some of those, the, like the day-age view, for example, uh, many people who hold the day-age view would say that the dinosaurs existed long before man and became extinct before man was created by God. Not, not all... Yeah, so, so some, some would say that animal death existed before the fall. Yes, uh, absolutely, that's correct. Uh, yes, please. Yes, yeah, so the, the behemoth and the leviathan sound like, either they sound like dinosaurs or, or at least dragons. Yes, uh-huh. It's a dragon, yes. It's a dragon, absolutely. So it's, it's possible that we have reference to dinosaur-type creatures in, in the Bible. Yes, absolutely. Please, Bonnie. Um, I, I think that's complicated. Uh, her question was, uh, do, do I believe that at the fall the earth suddenly aged? Um, any, anyone who holds to these views, three, four, five, or six, all hold to a certain, a certain amount of appearance of age being built into the creation. For example, uh, ask a child to draw a picture of Adam and Eve. The, the child's always going to draw a picture of two adults. All right, not, not two infants, all right? It seems obvious in the text that Adam and Eve were created with adult bodies because they were told to perform adult tasks, to, to care for the garden and specifically to reproduce. Uh, they were able to see the stars. I mean, obviously, there's some appearance of age built into the creation or they wouldn't be able to see the stars, which are so many thousands of light years away. So regardless of which of those positions, you've, you've got sort of some of that sort of built in uh, where God sort of creates the universe up and running, as it were, uh, a good... A good uh, analogy for this would be C.S. Lewis's uh, book, The Magician's Nephew, where Aslan creates Narnia. He sort of uh, goes through a, a, a rapid process of creating Narnia that, that results in a, a Narnia that looks far older than it is, it sort of up and running, as it were, uh, in, in Magician's Nephew in a single day. Uh, actually, I don't think Lewis believed in... in uh, Six-day creation at all, so it's kind of ironic that his his book presents such a good defense of it. Uh, did, did somebody else? Yes, please. Okay, what are we supposed to do in in biology class when they teach us about carbon dating? Uh, that's a great question. And uh, before before we actually get into it. Uh, I want to review the sort of five basic interpretive principles that we use when we study any passage of the Bible. Uh, first of all, we determine whether the passage is prose or poetry. 
Second, we figure out how the original audience would have interpreted the passage. Third, we look at the context. Fourth, we remember that Scripture interprets Scripture. And fifth, we remember that it's all about Jesus. All right. So uh, I realize that carbon dating, radiometric dating, is a strong argument for the age of the Earth. And there's actually a, a rather technical counter-argument based on how, how scientific laws and principles have changed since the fall that uh, we could certainly discuss afterward, but I think it's probably a little too technical to get into in this particular context. But I, I want to explain why, why I hold to the 24-day creation position uh, based upon these interpretive principles. If you go ahead and turn back to um, Genesis 1. I realize that the evidence is strong in favor of an old Earth, an old universe. I just believe the evidence in favor of 24-hour creation is even stronger. First of all, is Genesis 1 prose or poetry? Now, you'll recall that the framework uh, view uh, claims that Genesis 1 is essentially poetry. Uh, I disagree. The uh, common verb forms that are used in Hebrew poetry uh, are not used in Genesis 1. Rather, the vayiktol verb, which is the base form of Hebrew historical narrative, is the verb that runs throughout uh, Hebrews 1. And so I believe that it is uh, historical narrative, not uh, poetry. That is a linguistic argument based on what sort of Hebrew verb forms are used. Second, how would the original audience have interpreted it? The original audience were the Israelites who had just come out of Egypt. Moses writes the Pentateuch during the 40 years of wilderness wandering. Uh, most of these uh, new, new sort of interpretations to Genesis 1 are driven by modern uh, sort of scientific understanding of the age of the earth and the universe. The original audience wouldn't have had any of those issues. So it seems to me like the original audience would have been willing to accept the sort of plain or obvious value without, without great qualm. Third, uh, look at the context. The context of Genesis 1 is Genesis chapter 2. Genesis 2 expands on day 6, uh, sort of telling us in greater detail what happens in day 6. In Genesis 2, doesn't take place over millions of years or billions of years. It seems to be a single day, and therefore that seems to be a strong indication that day six back in Genesis 1 is a single day, and, uh, and therefore that all the days are days. Scripture interprets Scripture. Uh, please turn to Exodus chapter 20. Exodus chapter 20, verse 11. This is, this is the argument that actually convinced me to adopt the what, the calendar day view or the 24-hour day creation view is this verse, Exodus 20, verse 6. It's in the Ten Commandments, the commandment on the Sabbath day. It says, For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea and all that is in them, but he rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. It seems to me in this verse that the six days of our week are being equated with the six days of creation. And and it's by the same author, too, by Moses. And so it, it seems to me that, that we are being encouraged to interpret the, the days of Genesis 1 as equivalent to our work days. And then finally, it's all about Jesus. And we go back to the doctrine of original sin. Only if the disobedience of the first Adam is the cause of everything wrong with the world. Only then is the solution 
the obedience of the second Adam. Only if everything is Adam's fault is the solution for everything, the obedience of Christ. And so uh, everything in the world that you find that you don't like, everything that's, that's bad about the world is a result of Adam's sin. And that ties into this, but that's only true if, if the 24-hour day view is true. And so in the end, I believe the 24-hour day view exalts Christ, uh, uh, shows the comprehensiveness of his work, that he not only saves us from the consequences of sin, but actually uh, saves the whole creation from the consequences of our sin as well. Thoughts on this? And I haven't forgotten you and your question, but thoughts on this? You're allowed to disagree, it's okay. Yes, please. Uh, his question is why a new heaven and a new earth rather than a, just a redemption of the present one? I would say that the new heaven and the new earth is a redemption of the present one. That, uh, that it's, it's this world that's going to be transformed into the new creation. It's not like, it's not like God comes and destroys the individual atoms that the world is made of. You look at God's fire in the Bible, it consumes some things, it purifies others, and that's, that's, it seems like what we're going to have on Judgment Day. That, that sort of fire. Uh, good question. Well, the, the, the book of Genesis, uh, by large, is prose. It does contain poems in it. Uh, how do your translators indicate to you whether something is prose or poetry? This is a decision made in the original language. What do they do to the English text? Yeah, they indent. I mean, if you look at Psalms, you'll see that it's put in lines, it's put in stanzas. All right, they can't retain the original meter or the original alliteration, the, many of the poetic markers, but the translators do give you some sort of indication that the original text was poetry. Uh, it's actually not hard to make that decision any more than it's hard in English. It's actually easy to tell in English when something's poetry, and it's actually easy in Hebrew as well. Was there a question over here? Yes, please. Okay, the, the question is, if, if God introduced the appearance of age into the creation, is, is God being deceptive or, or introducing a falsehood into creation? What were you going to say? Okay, so he said no, first of all, because God told us. So it, the idea there is it would only be deceptive if God didn't tell us. Yeah, here's, here's the deal. Um, God gets to have his cake and eat it too. All right. Could, could God have made an old universe that looks old? Could he have done that? Could he have taken 14 billion years to make everything? Obviously, of course he could. Could he have made everything instantaneously? Yeah, obviously, he could have, okay? The biblical record is that, at least I believe, God made a young universe that looks old. So why would he do that? I think there are certain advantages to having a young universe, and there are certain advantages to having an old one. Uh, and so God gets to have his cake and eat it too. He gets both sets of advantages by making a young universe that looks old. Uh, and one of the advantages of an, an old-appearing universe, at least, is you have, you've got, you have something to study, Scientifically, you've got the, for example, we can study through our telescopes the uh, various stars in the universe and extrapolate from what we observe how long our sun is going to last, 
our, our, based upon those observations, our, our sun should be stable for at least another four or five billion years, I believe. All right. Um, so that's the advantage of having an old universe. The advantage of a young universe, uh, I ask you to consider one of the main arguments that non-Christians use based upon the age of the universe. They would say that man is insignificant. They would say that the universe has existed 14 billion years and that man has only been around for the last 10 or 20,000 years. And so man is just a cosmic blip, an utterly insignificant speck in the grand historical schema of the universe. Uh, I would say that how long did the universe exist before God created man? Five days. Five days. In other words, God wanted to get straight to the interesting part, okay, which is man. And God made a man-centered universe. Okay, it, it is all for us. It's all about us because it's all about God. Okay, and man is the divine image bearer. And so uh, God was interested in getting straight to mankind because mankind is the pinnacle of the creation. Uh, so the young universe that looks old, it seems to me God gets both sets of advantages. Not buying it, yeah, okay, that's cool. Um, think of it as like Williamsburg. Um, is, is, Williamsburg is made to appear old, okay? Is it deceptive? Is it a falsehood? Uh, no, because they, 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 they tell you, they tell you, <laughs> okay? And, but they have reasons. They have reasons for the appearance of age. And, uh, it seems to me that God had good reasons for, for the appearance of age as well. Uh, I, I do want to get back to the, this young lady's question. She asked about carbon dating. The, I believe the main response to it is a complicated one. It's in 2 Peter. So if you'd be willing to turn there in your Bible to 2 Peter chapter 3. On the topic of radiometric dating, regardless of what method is being used, uh, the level of radioactive isotopes can be measured in uh, dead organic material and even other matter, I believe, as well, to date how old they are. Very strong argument in favor of the uh, extreme age of the universe in general and our planet in particular. We're looking at Second Peter chapter three, verses three through seven. Now, young lady, this isn't easy, but I think it is the answer to your question. So here we go. Okay. First of all, you must understand that in the last days, scoffers will come, scoffing and following their own evil desires. They will say, where is this coming, he promised. Ever since our fathers died, everything goes on since it as it has since the beginning of creation. But they deliberately forget that long ago, by God's word, the heavens existed, and that the earth was formed out of water and by water. By these waters also, the world of that time was deluged and destroyed. By the same word, the present heavens and earth are reserved for fire, being kept for the day of judgment and destruction of ungodly men. What I'd like you to focus on is verse 4, the second half. This cavil or argument that unbelievers use. They say, ever since our fathers died, everything goes on as it has since the beginning of creation. In other words, there is this belief uh, of continuity or uniformity in science. The belief that the scientific laws and principles that we find now are the scientific laws and principles that have always existed. And uh, radiometric dating is based upon that assumption. The assumption that what we discover now, the way we discover the universe works now, is the way that it has always worked. All right, but according to this passage, there are several discontinuities built into uh, reality. The first, of course, is the fall into sin. 
The second is the flood, and the third will be the final judgment. And in other words, what were the laws of nature that we discover now? Laws of motion, laws of thermodynamics. What were they like before the flood? According to this passage, we have no idea. What were those laws like before the fall into sin? According to this passage, again, we have no idea. What, what I'm saying is that, is that these dating methods assume a continuity, a perpetuity to the scientific principles upon which they're based that uh, does not, in fact, exist. And if you didn't understand that, um, I'll be happy to try and explain it in greater detail, or, or maybe someone else can explain it. Unfortunately, we're out of time, Phil. But I'll be happy to talk to you afterward also, okay? So uh, let's go ahead and pray and we'll be done. God Almighty, we acknowledge that these are uh, difficult matters and uh, potentially divisive matters. I pray that uh, they would not prove divisive to us, but that we would extend a mutual charity and love toward one another, regardless of our uh, positions on this particular issue. We uh, unite in our affirmation that you are our maker. We unite in our affirmation that we are descended from Adam and that it is because of his sin that we and this world are the way we are. We thank you that you provided a new Adam for us in your son Jesus, through whose obedience all that has become wrong will be made right. We thank you, Lord Jesus, for the sufficiency, the comprehensiveness, the completeness of all that you have done for us as the second Adam, as our new federal head. We praise you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.